So this morning, we'll be continuing our sermon series um, from Habakkuk, and we'll be looking at chapter 2, um, verses 2 through 20. Again, that's Habakkuk 2, 2 through 20. And um, I'll be reading the, the verses through the ESV version, so it may not match with your Bible, but just a heads up. All right. Verse 2, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it, for still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie, if it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay, behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith, moreover, Wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those who wake, who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who built a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes neighbors drink, pour out your war wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness you will have your fill of shame instead of glory drink yourself and show your uncircumcision the cup in the lord's right hand will come around you and utter shame will come upon your glory the violence done to lebanon will overwhelm you as with the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to earth to the cities and all who dwell in them what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image and a, a teacher of lies? For, it make, for its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who, ta who says a wooden, to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at, at all. But the Lord in his holy temple let all the earth Keep silence before him. May God bless his word. Thanks, Natalie. The world is not as it should be, the world is not right. 
there's a distinct lack of justice in this world. We all feel the truth of these statements intuitively inside of ourselves to some extent of another. Just open up any news website on any given day and injustice screams at us through the headlines. Video a French officer beating protester probed. Third of world's poorest girls denied education. Africa's richest woman ripped off her country. Or consider just this past week on Monday, we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And even though our country has made some progress, it's apparent that even over 50 years after his death, Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream of racial equality in this country has still not been fully realized. Or we all face different forms of injustice on a personal level. Maybe for some of you, you faced a situation in which a parent or a teacher disciplined you for something that you didn't even do. Or maybe a so-called good friend stabbed you in the back. Or maybe you were laid off from your job despite all the blood, all the sweat, all the tears that you poured into the company over the many years. We all see, we all experience, we all hear injustice at so many different levels of society. The injustice that we see in corrupt politicians, the injustice of over 46 million refugees around the world today forced out of their home because of violence, because of war, because of human rights violations or persecution. The injustice of around three quarters of a million abortions performed in this country every day. The injustice of climate change. One of my sons uh, recently came up to me and said, Dad, I don't think adults really understand what kind of a world they're leaving for us kids. The world is not as it should be. And as we dig into the third week of Habakkuk chapter, uh, chapter 2, we're still continuing to struggle with this reality. We're struggling with this cognitive dissonance, as we've used this term in previous weeks. The cognitive dissonance of the three statements that Pastor Jeff shared with us last week. The three statements that God is all-powerful. God is all-loving. And yet, injustice and evil exist in this world. And there's a cognitive dissonance because it seems like if injustice and evil exist in this world, one of those first two statements have to be not true, right? Either God is not all-powerful enough to take care of the evil injustice, to rid the world of that evil injustice, or God is not all-loving enough to want to, to care enough to want to get rid of the world of that evil injustice. And so we have this cognitive dissonance of how can we affirm that God is all-powerful? How can we affirm that God is, God is all-loving in the face of the reality that we see around the world today? And that's the context of our passage today. As we saw in the previous weeks, 
in Habakkuk chapter 1, Habakkuk starts his book by crying out to God, crying to God about all the injustice that's happening in his home country of Judah. And what's God's response? God responds, don't worry, I'm bringing those dreaded, those fearsome, those violent Chaldeans to come to be my instruments of justice on Judah. And Habakkuk says, what kind of a solution is that, God? Because these Chaldeans, these Babylonians, they're idolaters. They don't worship you, the one true God. And they're arguably just as evil, or even more evil, even more unjust than those people that I was complaining about to begin with. What kind of solution is that, God, to the injustice that I see in Judah? And in our chapter today, we see God's response to that question. God's response to this question of what kind of solution to that is that. And what God says in Habakkuk chapter 2 is that he reigns and ultimately his just justice will come without fail. So let's start taking a look into our text by examining the first part of our passage. And what we read in Habakkuk chapter 2 verses 2 through 3 is, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And in the verse 2, God tells Habakkuk to write his word onto tablets. To the ancient Hebrew reader, they'd be reminded of when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. If you remember, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, he engraved them onto two stone tablets that were given to Israel. The tablets represented God's covenant that he was making with the people of Israel. And they were engraved on the stone tablets to remind Israel of his truthfulness from generation to generation to generation. And so here in Habakkuk, just as back in Exodus, in the same way, God tells Habakkuk to write his word onto stone tablets because his word isn't just a word meant for Habakkuk at this present age. His word is meant for all his people, all the people of Israel. His word isn't meant to fade away with time. His word is meant to endure throughout time from generation to generation. Because you see, the word of God endures because the will of God will come without fail. The will of God will certainly come. Now, there are four reasons why people sometimes don't follow through on what they say they'll do. Reason number one, forgetfulness. Just last night, I made a promise to my sons as they were going to sleep that I was going to refill their humidifier. And I forgot. And this morning, my, my oldest son woke up with a bloody nose because of that. It's not because I didn't intend to, refill, uh, intend to forget to refill his humidifier. It's not because I intended to, to break my word. Life gets busy and we get distracted and sometimes we just forget. Second reason, changing circumstances. Not all of you guys are old enough to remember this, but in 1988, during the presidential election, George Bush, the older George Bush, was famous for saying these words. 
read my lips, no new taxes. That's what he said as he was campaigning. And guess what happened? He raised taxes. Because there was a recession that happened that he couldn't have foreseen. And in order to avoid gouging cuts into the budget, he was forced to negotiate with Congress. And in his negotiations, he had to raise taxes. There are circumstances that we don't expect that can cause us to go back on our word. Or sometimes people just don't follow through on the word because of, of an arbitrary or fickle will. Maybe this has happened to you. During the week, you think, okay, this weekend, I'm going to clean the entire house. Or I'm going to do all this yard work, clean up all the leaves. Or I know I've had this paper that's been due. I'm going to spend all my time on Saturday working on this paper. And then the weekend comes. You know, your alarm goes off and you think, oh, I think I'm just going to sleep. And you sleep in. Or maybe you decide, oh, I just don't feel like doing that work I said I was going to do, and so I'm just going to watch Netflix instead. Or my friends just invited me to go hang out. I'm going to go hang out with them instead. We don't follow through on our words sometimes because we're broken and we have an arbitrary fickle will. Or lastly, sometimes we don't follow through because of lack of power. This past year, Theresa May three times negotiated a deal with Europe for how Britain would leave the European Union. Three times she brought this deal before her own parliament to get passed. And three times, even though she had given her word that she would figure out a way for Britain to leave Europe, three times she, she didn't have the power to have the deal that she negotiated with Europe to get passed in her own parliament. Sometimes we can't follow through on our word just because we don't have the ability to. We don't have the power to. But God is not like us. God's not finite like us. God remembers. Psalm 105.8 says, He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. Isaiah 46.10, in response to changing circumstances, reminds us that God, nothing is unexpected to God. It says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. And God is not arbitrary. God is constant. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie, or son of man that he should change his mind. And of course, we believe that God is all-powerful, that God is sovereign. Psalm 147, 5 says, Great is our Lord, and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The will of God will come without fail. Sometimes it feels like the will of God has been thwarted when we look at injustice around the world. Sometimes it feels like God is not present in this world. Sometimes it seems like God is just either ignoring us or, or not paying attention to us. And what our passage in Habakkuk today reminds us is that there is a timing for God's will. God's will is intentional and purposeful. God's will will come at the appointed time. And when it seems like God's will is slow to come, when it seems like this injustice just isn't disappearing, he reminds us that his will will certainly come. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Peter writes, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Peter's reminding us that sometimes we just don't see the big picture. We're living in this present moment, in this present second. 
and we miss the big picture view. And God, to God, God has his plan. God has his appointed times for things. And God will bring his will about. And so as we explore the rest of Habakkuk, we see a little bit more about what God's will is actually saying. What is this will that he's intending to bring about? What is this will that he's responding with, uh, revealing in his response to Habakkuk? It's demand for justice. And we see in the rest of our chapter that God's just judgment will prevail ultimately over the unjust. Because you see, God has a heart for justice, and his will comes out of his heart. God is a righteous and holy God, and his righteousness and holiness are intertwined with his justice. Dennis Hollinger, the former president of Gordon-Conwell, has written, the striking feature of many biblical texts is the way righteousness and justice go hand in hand and are intimately related. Righteousness is both God's declaration through justification and the resulting outworking in our moral lives can never be far removed from justice. Thus, to be a righteous person because of the work of Christ is also to be a just person. God's justice is seen throughout the Old Testament. There are two things that God keeps faulting Israel for throughout the Old Testament. The first is adultery, worshiping false gods. And what's the second? Injustice. Injustice against the orphans. Injustice against the widows. Injustice against those who aren't in a position of power to fight for themselves. And so in the rest of our chapter, we see five woes demonstrating God's justice. Five woes that show that God's justice is commensurate with the injustice that people are perpetrating. I'll go through these pretty quickly. In verses 6 through 8, we see a woe against those who plunder what isn't theirs, who take what doesn't belong to them. And the woe against them is that ultimately they will be plundered. Ultimately, what they have will be taken from them. The second woe in verses 9 through 11 is a woe against those who build their home unjustly. And there's a play on words in this woe. The word Habakkuk describes those who build their house with, through unjust gain. And the word describing the process of gaining unjust gain is a word related to cutting. And so Habakkuk is saying that those who gain, build their houses through cutting, those who cut off all other peoples are themselves cutting off their own sinful soul. And in verse 3, Habakkuk, uh, God uh, proclaims a woe corporately against a, a group of people, those who build a city without, uh, with blood and with violence. And we see here a woe against those who seek to build something in a way that is not God's way and seek to build something that is counter to God's creation. And in response to this, God says, my creation ultimately will prevail. And when I create and bring my creation into its fullness, my glory will be throughout the entire world. And the glory that these people seek to create in building these cities will be overwhelmed by the glory of God. The fourth woe, as against those who shame and disgrace their neighbors. And in response to that, God says, they themselves will be shamed and disgraced. The glory that they seek will be replaced by that disgrace. And lastly, there's a woe against those who build and worship idols. And again, there's some uh, trickiness with words here. 
Because those who build and worship idols will be responded to by silence from those idols. But when it comes to God, who reigns from his throne, who reigns in his holy temple, it is the entire earth who will be silent in reverence and in awe before the God who judges justly. And so what we see in the rest of Habakkuk is that God's just judgment will prevail over injustice. But you might ask, isn't justice delayed, justice denied? This is an adage that we've all heard growing up in the U.S., right? I mean, if I'm an innocent man and I've been arrested and it takes years before I'm put on trial, in effect, I've been denied justice because I am serving time for a crime that I didn't commit, right? Or maybe, maybe I got hit by, hit by some, you know, I'm walking down the street and someone hits me with their car and I end up racking up numerous medical bills. If it takes years and years for me to get justice, I'm not just suffering physically, I'm suffering financially while I'm waiting for justice to happen, if it ever happens. So if God is delaying his justice, isn't that injustice in and of itself? So as we look at Habakkuk and as we look at the rest of the Bible, we, we see a partial answer to questions like this. If we look at the verse in 2 Peter immediately after the verse we referenced earlier, we read, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And in the same way, Paul in the book of Romans when he's rhetorically asked, or when he's addressing people who wonder whether judgment is going to happen at all, Paul asks the rhetorical question, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So when we ask the question, is justice delayed, justice denied, one partial answer is that we're all guilty of injustice. That we're all broken people deserving of God's judgment. And one reason God delays his justice is because he's patient with people. He's patient and he's merciful and he's gracious towards us. And he delays his justice because he desires people to turn away from their sin, to turn away from their justice, to turn towards him and fall on his mercy and grace, fall at the cross, and worship him, and be saved. But I say this is a partial answer, because there are still questions about God's justice that sometimes we just can't answer in our finiteness. God has a certain wisdom that is beyond our wisdom. God's ways are higher than our ways. God is infinite, and we, are infin and we are finite. We don't have that big picture view that God has. We see something tiny. And so sometimes, understanding why God, with God withholds his justice and why evil and injustice continues to reign in this world is something that we just can't understand and that isn't totally answered by the Bible. And to this, God calls us to trust in him, to trust him with faith, to trust that his wisdom is higher than our wisdom, 
and that God is sovereign and almighty and all loving. And in some ways, there's some comfort to this, right? Because I know if, if I was put in charge of administering justice for the entire world, I'd probably screw it up because I am broken. I am finite. I am selfish. I am prideful. I will do something inadvertently, either purposefully or, or, or uh, um, either purposefully or without purpose, accidentally, I would do something that wasn't just. And so there's some comfort in knowing that God, the God whose wisdom is above our wisdom, God, the God whose understanding of justice is above our finite understanding of justice, is the one who's in charge of things. And so we're called to trust in him. And ultimately, this is what we see in the second half of verse 4 of our chapter. We read one of the most famous verses of the Old Testament, that the righteous shall live by his faith. This is a verse with extraordinary significance, both for Jews and for Christians. Rabbi Simlai, in the third century, said, Moses gave Israel 613 commandments. They went through and tried to count every single one. 613 commandments. David reduced them to 11. This was from a certain psalm. Micah to 3, live justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Isaiah to 2, but Habakkuk to 1. To most Jewish scholars, this half verse, the righteous shall live by his faith, was a good summary of the entire Hebrew Bible. And this verse is extraordinarily significant for us as Christians, obviously, too. It's quoted three times in the New Testament, in Romans, in Galatians, and in Hebrews. And for those of you guys who've studied church history, when Martin Luther, before he started the Reformation, when he began to be convicted about the truth of what God did on the cross, this was the verse that convicted his heart about how we are saved, that we are saved by faith alone, by grace through faith alone. The righteous shall live by his faith. We are called to live with faithfulness to God while waiting for justice. We're not called to be like Kevin Durant in the NBA. In 2016, Kevin Durant was playing for the Oklahoma City Thunder, and his team lost in the Western Conference Finals to the mighty Golden State Warriors. After that season, Kevin Durant was a free agent. He could sign with any team he wanted. So what did he do? Well, the saying is, you know, if you can't beat them, join them, right? And so Kevin Durant signed with the Golden State Warriors, where he won two more championships, or where he won his two championships. When we see injustice around the world, and when we sometimes even see injustice winning around the world, our response isn't to be like Kevin Durant's. We're not to turn our back on God. God calls us to live consistently in faithfulness to him, to wait on his justice, to trust that he will bring his justice ultimately to this earth. God calls us to trust in him and not in ourselves. Sometimes when we see injustice, we can be tempted to think, well, God's not looking out for me. My family's not looking out for me. My friends aren't looking out for me. I got to look out for myself. But no, God is calling us to let go of our self-sufficiency and to lay our lives, to, to, to listen to where he is leading and to trust in him and his ultimate justice. We're not to respond to violence with violence, but we're to entrust ourselves and our enemies to God's ultimate just judgment, just as Christ did 
Sometimes this may put us at a disadvantage. We may not get what we want. We may not be able to influence the people that we want. We may find ourselves on the losing side of society, on the losing side of culture, on the losing side of government. But we have this call to live with faithfulness while we wait for God's justice. And ultimately, we will see God's justice. Ultimately, we will see more clearly and more, more fully Yahweh sitting on his throne, sitting in his holy temple, reigning in complete authority, in complete sovereignty, where all evil and justice are gone. Ultimately, God will bring his righteousness, his holiness, in its fullness to this earth. And when that happens, the last verse of Habakkuk will be seen in its completeness. The earth will be silent before the Lord in reverence of God, the holy, holy, holy God who is all-wise, who is all-knowing, who is all-powerful. And we await that day when God does bring that justice, when God does eliminate evil from this world. We await that day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But, then, but until that day, we live with faithfulness. We live following our God, continuing to pursue him, trusting that he will bring his justice, having confidence that even as we lament to God about all that's happening around us, we lament with faith that God is in control and God is all wise. Let us pray. Father God, sometimes we can't see you. Sometimes we don't feel you. Sometimes all we see around us is evil. And yet, you are the light that breaks through the darkness, Lord. And so God, teach us, convict us, work within us to enable us to be faithful to you, Lord, to enable us to walk with faithfulness, enable us to rely and to trust on you and not on ourselves as we await that day of justice, Lord, as we await the day of the Lord when you, all things will be revealed and we will all worship you as the one true God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.